Welcome to Messy Closet, the spiritual journey of Generation X. I'm Roseanne Carlo, and here we explore the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and the lessons my friends and I may or may not have learned. Welcome back, and thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks to Spotify and Podbean for helping me bring you Messy Closet, and to everyone out there who listens and downloads, I appreciate you so much. I am at almost 30,000 downloads because of all of you, and I just want to really just give you a heartfelt thank you so much. So today we're talking Danceteria, and I was talking Madonna on Friday, and remembering her Super Bowl performance, which was just off the hook. In 2012, Madonna took to the field for the halftime show, and in usual theatrical Madonna style, she brought it. And her performance was sponsored by Bridgestone that year. And this year, Rihanna's performance was sponsored by Apple. And I got to say that Madonna knows how to entertain because she knew what was hot in 2012 was LMFAO. And she brought them out to sing Sexy and I Know It with them. And, you know, just a true Madonna perfectionist style. Her halftime show was pretty epic. I watched it again, still as good as it was the first time. So Madonna always reinventing herself that year, brings out LMFAO and sings Sexy and I Know It with them and the party rock anthem and that was blended in with music and I mean she really blended everything together so well she kind of did her own club version of her music which is what we all love about Madonna and of course famously with her cheerleaders were Nicki Minaj and MIA she had CeeLo Green as well and it was a great show not without controversy of course but This is how it goes. And that was because M.I.A. flipped the bird during the halftime show. Reportedly, though, Madonna was really pissed that she did this. And according to Page Six, back in 2012, it was February 10th, 2012, Madonna finally spoke out about M.I.A.'s now infamous flashing of her middle finger during the Material Girls Super Bowl Sunday halftime show. And she said, to tell you the truth, I didn't know about it. I didn't know anything about it until I left. And this is what she told on air with Ryan Seacrest. I found out about it in the elevator on the way to the car to go to the airport. And I was really surprised. And she sounded upset. She said, I wasn't happy about it. I mean, I understand it's pretty punk rock and everything, but to me, there was such a feeling of love and good energy and positivity. It seemed negative. It's such a teenager, irrelevant thing to do. There was such a feeling of love and unity out there. What's the point? It was just out of place. And of course, MIA's move has become one of the most talked about moments of the halftime show One of the others, of course, being the infamous Justin Timberlake and Janet Jackson fiasco where she was the one who was revealed 
and she was the one who took more heat than Justin Timberlake. Janet deserved more respect. So let's get back to Madonna's epic 2012 performance and her roots, not just from Michigan, but New York City. So she arrives in New York City, she's got $35 in her pocket, and she starts to make these connections. And one of her main connections was at a club called Danceteria, which was located at 252 West 37th in New York City. And it was open from 1979 until 1986. And there was a second location in the Hamptons that was open until 1995. So there were three different locations in New York City and four different locations in the Hamptons. The most famous location was a four-floor venue at 30 West 21st Street in the city, and it served as the location for the disco scene in the movie Desperately Seeking Susan. So this is the Madonna location, and this is the second location of Danceteria in NYC. And now we know that Madonna has immortalized the place of the birth of her music, her artistry in the movie Desperately Seeking Susan. So I definitely have to go back and check out that scene. So Danceteria, at least its first location on West 37th, it catered to like all the after hours crowds. So like the downtown rock clubs, the mud club, tracks, tier three, Chinese chants, and CBGBs and all of the gay discos. And the club's DJs were Mark Kamins and Sean Cassette. And Mark Kamins is the one who got Madonna's demo tape, everybody out there. But it was operating illegally and it was closed by the NYPD and FDNY in 1980. So Danceteria was actually the first club to play videos and have two separate DJs play for 12 hours straight. So this place was probably wild, as wild as I think it could be because it was the 80s. This video lounge at Danceteria was designed by video artists John Sanborn and Kit Fitzgerald, and they programmed an eclectic mix of found footage, video art, and early music videos and musical performances. So this was beyond its time for the 80s, way beyond. If you didn't know this about New York City, doormen are a treasure. And Danceteria happened to have famed doorman Howie Montauk and this was somebody who just seriously knew how to work a door. He worked at Studio 54, he worked at Mud Club, he worked at Palladium and Paradise Club, and also Tunnel. And he saw Madonna in her early days, the Beastie Boys in their early days, pretty much saw all of these amazing acts and 
because he was so professional and great at his job, he was one of the most wanted and sought after doormen in New York City. Montag was the person who introduced Madonna's music video, Everybody, in the early 80s. And as I previously stated, Madonna has a lot to do with World AIDS Day and Montag is the reason why he passed away on June 7th, 1991. On June 6th, 1991, he invited 20 guests to his loft in Bowery. Bowery is a downtown section of Manhattan. Um, So it's Bowery and East 2nd is where his apartment was. And Madonna attended by phone from Los Angeles. He had AIDS. And the party he invited everyone to was an unalive party for himself. So what he did was he took five barbiturates and went into a deep sleep, very labored sleep, but he kept breathing. And his guests stayed overnight and he woke up and he was angry. And he swallowed 20 more pills and was gone within a half an hour. What an end. But Madonna saw that suffering, which is why she's so vocal about AIDS and HIV and finding cures and medications and treatments and whatever we can do because so many people did suffer in the 80s and throughout the early 90s before there was any kind of detection or you know any sort of medication you could take to lessen the symptoms and make them undetectable. There's a great website called BoweryBoysHistory.com and they're talking about an article that they've written September 18th in 2009 and it's called Lucky Star, Danceteria and the Debut of Madonna and they've got some great pictures of her dancing on stage and performing borderline on that stage. In their article, they describe Madonna Louise Chacon as a scrappy 19-year-old Michigan teen arrived in New York the same year as Studio 54, 1997. And she performed in all these places, Roxy Pyramid, Mud Club, but they're saying, and I have said, that Danceteria is the most influential on her career. And it was just a staple of the 80s. Again, I said it moved all over town and its most recognizable location was the birth of Madonna's career, the four-story building at West 30th and 21st Street. And actually now, it's a condo. Here's some more celebrities who worked at Danceteria. LL Cool J was the elevator operator and a couple of members of the Beastie Boys were busboys. Keith Haring worked at the Coat Check, and Karen Finley and Sade were both very briefly employed behind the bar. Pretty much anyone who was anyone showed up to Danceteria, and this is a big change from the Studio 54 crowd uh, that was a very, very glamorous. This was not quite as glamorous but like you wanted to go probably let everyone in because it was illegally functioning (laughs) and it's just 
one of those clubs that existed in that moment of time that I don't know if a lot of people outside of New York had heard of until Madonna told any of her life story. Now, once Danceteria moved out to the Hamptons, Russell Simmons would host talent shows on Wednesdays and Anne Magnuson would throw barbecues. So it then started to elevate its own status to that of Studio 54, but much different with the type of music because Studio 54 was well, well known for disco. And this was 80s dance, freestyle house, the whole deal. And from the website insomniac.com, Mark Kamens is quoted as saying, I think Danceteria was a remarkable space, like Warhol's factory, or Max's Kansas City, or CBGB's. Jim Forrett and Rudolph Piper had this amazing finesse to hire people that they believed in. Why were the Beastie Boys the cleaning crew? Why was Madonna one of the dancers? Why was Sade a bartender? You're talking about a magical moment and a magical space. The article says that Danceteria was the spectrum of golden era New York City nightlife, a place where one could indulge in both dance floor hedonism and intellectual discourse. It was grittier than Studio 54, more commercial than Mud or Hurrah, and open for business each night of the week. And that's a little bit what I said. It was anybody could get in. It was not as exclusive, but then it started to build itself up. So it had several manifestations and what it says is a sensibility had been growing. It was punk and ironic. It was anti-conscriptive. We wanted to challenge people's expectations. I was there seven nights a week, week after week, remembers co-founder Rudolph Piper. I never thought it would end. It wasn't just a club, it was a lifestyle. And that is very, very true for a lot of Gen Xers too, especially who lived in and around the city. All we did on the weekends was hit up every nightclub and new bar that we could just to say we did. It was a big deal to go to these clubs. It was a big deal to go out dancing all night. We loved it. And here the clubs close at 4 a.m. And then you have after hours from 4 to 8 a.m. And then you have breakfast from 8 a.m. to 9.30, and then you go home and get some sleep. The city that never sleeps, it is called that for a reason. A re- I, I can't even tell you how much sleep I've probably lost over the years, and I don't regret it at all. Oh, DJ Cammons recalls that he had two or 3,000 records in his DJ booth on the main floor. He would play 10-hour sets. He played everything. He said it was never boring because people didn't know what to expect next. Danceteria gained a reputation as the nexus of high-low culture and the center of all things New Wave. New Order, The Smiths, Duran Duran, Sonic Youth, Devo, Sade, Nick Cave, BC Boys, LL Cool J, and of course Madonna, who was dating Cammons, played the club along highbrow acts like Philip Glass, Oliver Lake, Laurie Anderson, John Lurie, and the Lounge Lizards. 
I find it really extraordinary that all of these musicians who were huge, that we loved so much in the 80s, all worked there because it seems like they were hired not just to work at the club, but because they had something in them that made them outshine everyone else there and they were all successful. So it's almost like a good luck place. If you worked there in the 80s, you became famous for your music and it just became a magnet for artists who wanted to achieve international fame. There were theme nights too. There was one called Depravnik Island. This is so 80s. They would play official Soviet music. It was vapid official Soviet music is how it's described, along with the Carpenters and Barry Manilow. And then there was a night called Dinner Party and David Bowie sat at a piano and played extremely banal lounge music. And it wasn't about giving people what they wanted. It was about putting them in a provocative context, challenging their habits, and doing it with a sense of fun. So this sounds like it would have been exactly my kind of place where avant-garde art meets ultra non-conformity and just wild music. I love it. I feel very fortunate to have been born a Gen Xer because we got the last of all the good stuff before technology took over. And honestly, in the blink of an eye, less than 50 years, we went from analog to digital. And I'm still confused and catching up as I'm sitting here making a podcast, which to me is so funny because I'm doing everything myself. And I never thought that I could because I didn't grow up thinking anything digital was important. But I am thankful for it because I get to bring you a little bit of that Gen X magic through this podcast. And for me and for my friends in the city area, the metropolitan area of New York, we really did spend so much of our time finding places to go dancing, even when we weren't old enough to drink. We would either do the teen nights where they served soda, or we would take an under 21 sticker or stamp, whatever it was, bracelet, just to go out dancing. And that was a big part of our culture. And Madonna captures that. And she captures that club feeling because her roots began at Danceteria. It's great to know that it it's not just her. It is the Beastie Boys. It is LL Cool J. It is Sade. We got a lot of amazing artists that worked in this one place. Who knew? Because in the 80s, you couldn't just, you know, tweet about it and put it up on social media. I'm here. And if you want fame, come find this place. You literally had to do all of the legwork yourself to find where to go to give yourself the best opportunities. And obviously, Danceteria is one of those places, and it's going to go down in history as the place that gave us Madonna, the Beastie Boys, Sade, LL Cool J, and just brought us modern club culture. 
because they called it the gritty Studio 54, although it elevated itself to this iconic stature as well. But there was probably more people who went to Danceteria because they couldn't get into Studio 54 than we realize. And I'm sure there are stories out there. So if anyone has stories from Danceteria or Studio 54 back in the 70s, the 80s, let me know. I want to hear them. And I thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Messy Closet. And don't forget to keep art and keep love alive. <laughs>